On the morning of May 11, 2021, Sam Bankman-Fried made his first television appearance. He sat at his trading desk and talked into his computer screen to two female reporters on Bloomberg TV. Thick black curls exploded off his head in every direction. People who tried to describe Sam's hair would give up and call it an afro, but it wasn't an afro. It was just a mess, and like everything about Sam's appearance, felt less like a decision than a decision not to make a decision. He wore what he always wore, a wrinkled t-shirt and cargo shorts. His bare knee jackhammered up and down at roughly four beats per second while his eyes darted left and right and collided with his interviewer's gaze only by chance. His general demeanor was that of a kid pretending to be interested when his parents hauled him into the living room to meet their friends. He'd done nothing to prepare, but the questions were so easy that it didn't matter. Crypto Wonderkind read the Bloomberg Cryon, while the numbers on the left of the screen showed that in just the past year, Bitcoin's price had risen by more than 500%. That first TV show Natalie watched from her own desk. But later, during future interviews, she'd walk around behind Sam to confirm that, yes, his eyes moved around so much because he was playing a video game on live TV. Often on live TV, Sam would not only play a video game, but respond to messages, edit documents, and tweet. The TV interviewer would ask him a question, and Sam would say, ah, interesting question, even though he never found any of the questions interesting. And Natalie knew he was just buying time to exit whatever game he was playing and re-enter the conversation. Natalie didn't know how a person was supposed to behave on live television, but she suspected it wasn't like this. Yet even as she watched Sam's first television performance, she sensed it might play well. Sam was odd on TV, but he was also odd in real life. In real life, people who encountered him often thought he was the most interesting person they'd ever met. She decided against media training, or anything that might make Sam seem less like Sam. That was an excerpt from Going Infinite by Michael Lewis, the book we're discussing today. It's about Sam Bankman-Fried and his company FTX. I wanted to start with this passage because it perfectly characterizes the person Sam is. Irresponsible, rude, strange, and unbelievably intelligent. But more on that later. The book was wild because it was entirely the product of perfect timing. Way before FTX blew up, Michael Lewis was shadowing SBF to write a book about him. This is around the same time Walter Isaacson was shadowing Elon Musk to write a biography, and it was the equivalent of finding out Musk had been perpetrating a massive fraud at Tesla halfway through writing the book. So it was interesting because of the first-hand access Lewis had to SBF and FTX. It was unlike the other books we've talked about in that John Carreyrou was writing about Theranos as an investigative reporter, and Diana Henriquez was writing about Madoff based on interviews with him after he was already in jail. But Lewis was riding on planes with SBF, spending time with him at FTX headquarters in the Bahamas, and watching the day-to-day -day operations of a fraud before anyone knew it was a fraud. So it's a really unique and unusual perspective, but the book was a little bit anticlimactic because it came out in October of 2023, right before the trial started. I typically limit these episodes to only information I learned while reading the book, but because of the timing on this one, I'm going to pull in a couple of other sources so we can cover a little bit of what happened in the trial. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's first jump back in time and learn a bit about SBF before FTX. It probably won't come as a shock to you that Sam was a weird kid. He was an exceptionally weird adult, so why wouldn't he have been a weird kid, right? There's one sentence in the book that I think sums it up perfectly. One interpretation of Sam's childhood is that he was simply waiting for it to end. Sam's parents were college professors, and you could probably accurately describe them as unconventional people. They didn't celebrate holidays or birthdays, and they had never gotten married. Sam didn't actually learn about this until he was in his 20s, but his parents had joined in a civil union rather than marriage in a form of silent protest for their gay friends who couldn't get married. I think it's a stretch to describe these things as weird, but they're definitely well within the bounds of unusual, especially when you consider them against the backdrop of typical American culture. Now, I'm pointing this out because it was the environment in which Sam was raised, and I think you can trace the through line of the adult he grew into and the crimes he committed all the way back to this unconventional childhood. Sam had a general sense of superiority towards other people, and it seemed to stem from the fact that he would examine widely held beliefs devise logical arguments for why they were wrong, and then basically consider everyone who believed them to be stupid. So let me explain what I mean with an example. Sam disagreed with the commonly held belief that Shakespeare is one of the best writers of all time. Aside from the fact that Sam found the plots of his stories to be weak, he believed it was statistically unlikely that Shakespeare could be the best writer. This quote is from the book, but Lewis pulled it from a, a blog that Sam wrote while he was in college. About half the people born since 1600 have been born in the past 100 years. But it gets much worse than that. When Shakespeare wrote, almost all Europeans were busy farming, and very few people attended university. Few people were even literate, probably as low as 10 million people. By contrast, there are now upwards of a billion literate people in the Western sphere. What are the odds that the greatest writer would have been born in 1564? 
Now, there were a handful of examples of this type of behavior, but my interpretation is that his parents had this innocent practice of examining conventional beliefs and doing the opposite if they disagreed with them. Sam seemed to take this a step further, using it to justify his superiority to others. And I think this contributed to his lack of respect for any rules or laws. He felt as if they didn't apply to him. The other important thing to understand about Sam's childhood was that he loved games, particularly games where you had to devise new strategies as the game evolved. He became obsessed with one game in particular called Magic the Gathering, and he played it all the time. For those of you like me who had maybe heard of Magic but didn't really know what it is, here's a quick explanation. Basically, players buy their own playing cards and assemble their own decks for games, and each card has a special character with different traits. The kicker is that you never knew which cards would be the best because new cards were always being released and old cards were being banned and the interaction between all the different cards was too complicated to memorize, so you couldn't really get good at the game simply by playing a lot. To be good at magic, you had to be comfortable making decisions amid uncertainty. And that point is really important because it's one of the defining characteristics that made Sam successful early in his career, so keep that in mind because we'll come back to it. Now that basically covers the important parts of Sam's childhood, but I want to touch on his college career because there were two important events from college that really shaped the rest of his life. Both of those events happened in his junior year at MIT, and the first was a seemingly random meeting with a man named Will McCaskill. Will was a 25-year-old philosophy lecturer at Oxford who randomly reached out to Sam one day and asked him to meet for coffee. It seems pretty likely that Will found Sam through Sam's posting on these utilitarian message boards online. In any event, Sam was in Boston to give a lecture at Harvard, so he and Sam met for coffee, and then Sam attended the lecture where Will was essentially recruiting college students to join a social movement called Effective Altruism. Much like Magic the Gathering, I also didn't know what Effective Altruism is, so I'll give you a little primer. Basically, a philosopher named Peter Singer published a paper in the 1970s outlining an argument that people with extra wealth were morally obligated to use it to help others. Uh, kind of the basis of his argument was the idea that if you were walking past a pond wearing a pair of expensive dress shoes, but you saw a kid drowning in the pond, you're not going to hesitate uh, to jump in the pond and save the kid because you might ruin your shoes. So that was like kind of the basic argument for his philosophy. Anyway, the paper got a lot of attention in academic circles, but it was never really practically applied. That is until 2009 when a group of young philosophers at Oxford started practicing Singer's ideas and branded them as effective altruism. The key premise behind effective altruism is that if you want to do good in the world, you should judge the effectiveness of your life based on the number of people you can save throughout your life. To do that, effective altruists separated career choices into four categories, only two of which made much sense to pursue from a mathematical perspective. The two important categories are direct benefiter and moneymaker. A direct benefiter is someone like a doctor who is actually doing the life-saving, while a moneymaker is someone like a banker who maximizes his income and then uses that income to fund life-saving measures. The argument that Will posed to Sam and the students at Harvard was that even an average investment banker could make enough money over his career to fund multiple doctors in Africa. So judging by the metric of total lives saved, it was more effective to be a moneymaker if you were equipped with the right skills than to be a direct benefiter. And Will's audience was equipped with the right skills. He was talking to young men in physics and math programs at some of the best universities in the country. Not only did they have the skills, but the philosophy was appealing to them. Interestingly, around the same time Sam was learning about effective altruism in the fall of 2012, one of Peter Singer's students, Peter Singer's the guy who kind of came up with this philosophy back in the 70s, one of his students at Princeton was the first person to accept a position on Wall Street with the intention of maximizing his income in order to give it away. This guy went on to work at Jane Street Capital. And that's where we come to the second major event of Sam's college career, his internship on Wall Street with Jane Street Capital. In the fall of his junior year, Sam realized he had no plan for the future, so he found his way to a job fair on campus where he left his resume with the Wall Street firms looking for traders. Three of them emailed him and invited him to interview for their summer internship programs. Up to this point in his life, Sam had no idea what he was meant to do, but going through the process of these interviews led to an important realization. He was perfectly suited to be a trader. The interviews for these positions consisted of all these weird games that were designed to reveal how candidates evaluated and responded to unusual problems while under time pressure. In the interview with Jane Street, for example, Sam and the other applicants were given 100 poker chips as currency to play the interview games for the day. Each part of the interview was a different game, like a hand of poker where you could pay a set amount of chips to exchange one of your cards for another, or where you could make side bets about the likelihood of the next card in the deck being a heart or a club or, or whatever. Another game consisted of 10 unevenly weighted coins. You could flip any combination of coins you wanted for 100 total flips. Each time you got heads, you got a poker chip. 
The first test here was how much you should be willing to pay to play the game. The next test was how you evaluated the different coins and which coins you decided to flip. The games, Lewis wrote, were testing his relationship to information, when he sought it, how he sought it, and how he updated his beliefs in response to it. I want to read you the next passage from the book because it nicely highlights the moment when Sam figured out what his weird talents made him uniquely qualified to do. Nothing in normal life, not even the games and puzzles that had sustained Sam through childhood, could serve as a proxy for whatever traders did at Jane Street. Childhood doesn't give you a version of this that would tell you you are good at it, said Sam. Childhood had given him math, at which he'd been very good but not great. Childhood had given him various strategic board and card games, at which he'd also been very good but not great. The Jane Street traders had tested his mind for qualities it had never been precisely tested for, and it appeared to Sam that God had tweaked trading in various ways, or at least games intended to simulate trading, to make it different from math and board games. Each of those tweaks had made the games more congruent with his mind. By the end of the day, it was clear that it was by far the best I'd ever done at anything, he said. Jane Street offered him a summer internship. So, for that matter, did the other high-frequency trading firms that had invited him to apply. One firm had halted their interview process midway through and announced that Sam had done so much better at their weird games and puzzles than every other applicant that there was no longer any point in watching him play. Later, on the Jane Street trading floor, one fellow trader still enjoyed dreaming up games and puzzles and putting them to Sam just to watch him play. Other people would have no idea what she was talking about, would not even see what the game was. Sam would not only instantly understand the game, but would play it beautifully. Perfume in the mail, she'd once said to Sam. Scent, scent, he'd replied. Britney Spears is no longer working. Idle, idle. A Goldman Sachs analyst discovers a cash flow model that predicts the future. Profit, profit. In the presence of strange new games, the relevant thought processes just seem to come to Sam. So we have these two big things that happened to Sam in his junior year that kind of paint the picture for how the rest of his life might unfold. He finds effective altruism, the philosophy that says you should maximize your earnings in order to maximize the good you can do in the world, and then he learns that he's perfectly equipped for high-frequency Wall Street trading, which is the means by which he can maximize his income. There was one other thing that happened during his internship at Jane Street that's worth mentioning because it's also a little bit of foreshadowing of what might be ahead. Jane Street encouraged their interns to gamble with each other and with the full-time employees, so naturally they would bet on anything. The only rule was that no intern could lose more than $100 per day. There was one particular intern named Asher Melman who Sam really hated, and one day Asher approached Sam to make a bet. Asher wanted to bet Sam on how much any one intern would lose gambling that day. After realizing that this was a terrible bet for Asher, Sam took it as a buyer at $65, meaning that for every dollar over $65 that an intern lost on that day, Asher would owe Sam a dollar. Or if the biggest loser was less than $65, Sam would owe Asher dollars in the opposite direction. As soon as Asher took the bet, Sam shouted to the room of interns, Who wants to flip a coin with me for $98? I'll pay a dollar to anyone who will do it. This guaranteed someone would take him up on the bet because the expected value was positive. 50-50 odds plus Sam's dollar. It also guaranteed that someone would lose more than $65 and Asher would owe Sam money. Sam immediately had a taker, and he won the toss, and Asher lost $33 to Sam. But that wasn't enough for Sam. He wanted an intern to lose $100 to maximize Asher's pain, so he kept instigating coin flips for more money. It didn't take Asher long to realize he'd made a stupid bet, and he was super embarrassed. This passage is from the book. It wasn't until the fourth flip that Sam lost, and by then everyone except Sam was unsettled by Asher's humiliation. And yet Sam was ever so slightly taken aback a few weeks later when his superiors expressed their dismay at what he'd done. They said the second coin flip was already one too many, said Sam. He wasn't surprised to learn that Asher Melman felt wounded. What surprised him was that his Jane Street bosses thought that he somehow missed the effect he was having on other people. He'd known exactly what he was doing. What he'd done to Asher was no more than what Jane Street was doing to competitors in the financial markets every day. It was not like I was unaware I was being a piece of shit to Asher, he said. The relevant thing was, should I decide to prioritize making the people around me feel better or proving my point? Sam thought his bosses had misread his social problems. They thought he needed to learn how to read other people. Sam believed the opposite was true. I read people pretty well, he said. They just didn't read me. So I shared that story because I think it's a revealing look into Sam's character, and it's pretty strong foreshadowing of his future misdeeds. Basically, what we learned there is that Sam was perfectly fine taking advantage of people and making them feel terrible as long as he thought what he was doing was justified. And this brings us back to one of the maxims we've seen play out repeatedly in these podcasts. Morals don't take vacations. If you see somebody is willing to be a piece of shit to somebody else, it's only a matter of time before that person will be a piece of shit to you too. Morals don't take vacations. And one of the ways you can avoid falling victim to fraud is to separate yourself 
from somebody as soon as you see them exhibit immoral behavior. Despite Sam's antics with Asher, Jane Street still hired him. Sam ended up working there for three years, and it's important to understand his experience at Jane Street because it informed what he did afterward in the crypto markets. Jane Street was in the business of finding statistical patterns and market inefficiencies and then trading on that information to make money. So a lot of a trader's day was spent on research projects, observing what happened in the markets and asking questions, then looking at historical price movements to inform their answers and decide if the theory was good enough to trade on. Like the game Sam played in his interviews, the day-to-day job of a Jane Street trader involved a lot of looking for coins weighted in his favor and flipping those coins. Here are a few examples from the book. It wasn't enough for the trader to make money. You needed to be able to explain why you were making money. A great trader at Jane Street was not a great trader unless he could explain why he was a great trader and why some great trade existed. As one former trader put it, it was, why are you great and how do we replicate you? And if you could not answer the question, they doubted you. But these little research projects didn't need to begin in a dignified way, with some theory about why some market might be inefficient. Often they'd be triggered by some weird event the trader had observed while trading. For example, you might notice, as Sam once did, that exactly 12 hours after the price of certain South Korean stocks rose on the Seoul Exchange, the price of certain other Japanese stocks rose on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Your first thought might be that this is merely a coincidence, but then it keeps happening. You dig into some old data and find that the same thing has been happening in these stocks for several months. You might trade on it and buy the Japanese stocks the instant the South Korean stocks rise. You might even make money. You wouldn't have satisfied the Jane Street system, however, because you didn't know why the Japanese stocks were rising in price 12 hours after the South Korean stocks. And so you looked even further into it, as Sam had, and he found that the price of both the South Korean and the Japanese ETFs were being driven by a single trader at a German bank. Every few days, the German bank trader had a bunch of buy orders to execute in both South Korea and Japan. He'd make his South Korean purchases before calling it a day, passing the Japan orders off to his Asian colleagues to handle when they awakened in Tokyo. The Jane Street trader could now happily see the pop in the South Korean ETF and buy the Japanese ETF until the German died, retired, or figured out how much his laziness was costing him. Sam found lots of trades whose success turned on the idiocy of some other trader or trading algorithm, Asher Trades. For a two-week stretch, Canada's main stock market index behaved weirdly at the opening every morning. At 9.30, it would pop higher or drop lower with unusual violence, and then at 9.31, revert to its previous levels. That wasn't how a market normally behaved in response to news. Something else was going on. Sam made a massive study and discovered that a month earlier, someone had done a massive, multi-billion dollar contract-sized trade in options on the Canadian stock market index. The trader who had done it needed to hedge his position whenever the price of the Canadian index moved. To do this, the trader had created a bot, which mindlessly bought the Canadian index when it went up and sold the Canadian index when it went down, thus causing it to go either up or down more than it otherwise would have done. On the days the Canadian stock market opened at a higher price than the day before, the bot would buy the index, driving its price even higher, requiring the bot to buy even more. It did the same thing in reverse when the index opened at a lower price than the day before. For two weeks, Sam's trading desk made a small fortune simply by selling the Canadian index after the bot had bought it and buying the Canadian index after the bot had sold it, until the trader who had created the bot wised up and turned it off. It was essentially reverse engineering someone else's dumb algo, said Sam. The constant hunt for statistical patterns in markets led to all sorts of strange insights. Every time Brazil won a World Cup match, the Brazilian stock market tanked, for instance, because the win was thought to increase the shot at re-election of Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff, perceived to be corrupt. A faster and better sense of the Brazilian soccer team's odds in the next match gave you a weighted coin flip in the Brazilian stock market. So that gives you a pretty good idea of how things worked at Jane Street. But I think the coolest example is what Sam did for the 2016 election. A lot of the traders shared the same opinion that the delay between election results being reported and the market moving was too slow. They smelled an inefficiency. Sam ran the project to trade on this inefficiency. So after doing a little bit of research, he realized that there was no standardized national reporting system for election data. Each state did it differently, and most of them had a lot of different data sources. The markets could only react to this data when they learned about it the same way everyone else did, by watching the live results. But the news networks had commercial breaks. And even though they wanted to be first to report, they weren't moving at the speed of high-frequency traders. So Sam assigned one trader to each state, and that person was in charge of finding the fastest source of election data for the state. They built a model just like the news outlets used, but they received the data faster than any other traders because they were compiling the data themselves, not getting it from CNN. Once they had the data, their trading strategy was simple. Bet against the market when there was good news for Trump, and bet on the market when there was good news for Clinton. This is from the book again. The Jane Street traders were indeed able to get a jump on CNN, sometimes by seconds, usually by minutes, and occasionally by hours. 
Trump up, one Jane Street trader would shout, and some other Jane Street trader would sell stocks. Five minutes later, John King would confirm the fact, and the market would move. As the evening wore on, Jane Street's worries that other high-frequency trading firms might be doing the same thing eased. Markets were moving at the speed of CNN, not the speed of data, said Sam. We were confident we had better info than the market. We had a sense that if anyone else was doing this, they were very small. Seven times that evening, voting results arrived that swung the odds by as much as 5% in one direction or the other. And seven times, Jane Street was ahead of the market move. So that's pretty cool. But what happened next was crazy. They saw the Florida panhandle going to Trump before anyone else, and they knew this basically guaranteed him the election. So they bet several billion dollars against the S&P and called it a night. But three hours later, the market changed its mind. Instead of a Trump win being a bad thing for the market, it turned out to be a good thing. And that bet Jane Street placed went from being a $300 million win to a $300 million loss. It turned out to be the single worst trade in Jane Street history. And basically nothing happened. Because Jane Street separated process from outcome, nobody got in trouble. Their logic had made sense. It just didn't play out the way they'd predicted. So Sam was essentially in charge of a trade that was the single worst trade in Jane Street history. It lost them $300 million. And... He didn't get in any trouble. So the good graces that Sam and the other traders received after this debacle were both incredible and commonplace at Jane Street. It's important to point out here that Jane Street had found value in Sam when basically nobody else had, and they did everything they could to make him happy, including hiring his brother and his best friend. His first year out of college, they paid him $300,000. His second year, he made $600,000. And his third year, he made $1 million as a 25-year-old. But he still didn't feel happy. He was incapable of feeling happiness or love or pride or pleasure, as he wrote to himself in a journal around that time. This had actually been true throughout his life to the point where he had to teach himself how to make facial expressions because having a blank stare all the time was hurting his interactions with other people. All this to say, despite a situation where Sam reasonably should have been happy, he wasn't. And he began wondering if this job he had stumbled into was really the thing that he was supposed to be doing. Did it actually yield his highest value? So he took a vacation to think about it, his first vacation in three years, and he realized Jane Street wasn't the place where he was maximizing his value. Keep in mind that in his annual reviews, his bosses told him after 10 years, he could expect to make anywhere between $15 million and $75 million per year, depending on his performance. And he still didn't think this was the place where he was maximizing his expected value. He thought he could do better elsewhere, and elsewhere for him was in the crypto markets. So this was in 2017 when crypto was a relatively new market, and there were a lot of inefficiencies to capture in the same way that Jane Street captured inefficiencies in other markets. Based on Sam's napkin math, he thought he could make upwards of a million dollars a day in the crypto markets. So he left Jane Street to do just that. Sam called his new company Alameda Research, and he staffed it with 20 or so effective altruists who had no crypto experience or interest. What they did have was interest in maximizing their earnings so they could give them away. Sam managed the company like he managed the rest of his life similar to an unsupervised sixth grader with ADHD. This is from the book. He was demanding and expecting everyone to work 18-hour days and give up anything like a normal life. While he would not show up for meetings, not shower for weeks, have a mess all around him with food everywhere, and fall asleep at his desk, said Tara McAuley, a young Australian mathematician who was, in theory, running the company with Sam. He did zero management and thought that if people had any questions, they should just ask him. Then, in his one-on-ones with people, he'd play video games. The firm's finances were already in a state of chaos. They'd started small a few months before with the half million left over after taxes from Sam's Jane Street bonus. But within a few months, they'd persuaded other richer effective altruists to lend them $170 million to trade crypto. They'd lost millions of it already, though how many millions no one could say for sure. In February, their trading system had lost half a million dollars per day. On top of the trading losses, some additional millions had simply vanished. No one seemed to know where the money had gone, but the employees were in full panic mode. Amid the turmoil, Sam inhabited what amounted to his own reality. His attitude toward the missing money was, eh, it'll probably turn up somewhere, so let's fucking trade. His first stab at an automated trading system was losing money at an alarming clip, but he'd created another, supposedly better one. Modelbot, it was called. Modelbot had been programmed to scour the world's crypto exchanges for inefficiencies to exploit. If for even a few seconds it was possible to buy Bitcoin on some Singaporean exchange for 7900 and sell it for 7920 on an exchange in Japan, Modelbot would do it over and over again thousands of times per second. But that example made Modelbot sound simpler than it was. 
Modelbot was programmed to trade roughly 500 different crypto coins on 30 or so different crypto exchanges, most of them in Asia, all of them basically unregulated. The tulip bulb-like explosion in crypto over the previous year had encouraged the creation of hundreds of new coins. Modelbot made no distinction between the better-known coins with deep markets like Bitcoin and Ether and the so-called shit coins that hardly traded at all, like sex coin and Putin coin and hot potato coin. Modelbot just hunted for any coin it could buy at one price in one place and sell in another at a higher price. Modelbot was maybe the biggest point of disagreement between Sam and his management team. Sam's release the Kraken fantasy was to hit a button and let Modelbot burn and churn through crypto markets 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. He had not been able to let Modelbot rip the way he liked because just about every other human being inside Alameda Research was doing whatever they could to stop him. It was entirely within the realm of possibility that we could lose all our money in an hour, said one. $170 million that might otherwise go to effective altruism could simply go poof. That thought terrified the four other effective altruists in charge of Alameda Research. One evening, Tara argued heatedly with Sam until he caved and agreed to what she thought was a reasonable compromise. He could turn on Modelbot so long as he and at least one other person were present to watch it, but should turn it off if it started losing money. I said, okay, I'm going home and going to sleep, and as soon as I left, Sam turned it on and fell asleep, recalled Tara. From that moment, the entire management team gave up on ever trusting Sam. So that gives you a little window into how things were going inside Alameda, but let's jump back a bit and understand the ways they were making money. The best example is the inefficiency they found in the South Korean market. They realized that Bitcoin was trading in South Korea for 20% more than it was in the U.S., so if you could buy Bitcoin in the U.S. and sell it in South Korea, you could instantly make a huge profit. But it wasn't that simple. First, you could only trade in South Korea if you were South Korean. That was the easy problem to solve. They found a South Korean grad student and started trading in his name. The real problem was that the South Korean government wouldn't let citizens sell more than $10,000 worth of won, the South Korean currency. So even if you bought Bitcoin in the U.S. and sold it in South Korea, you were now stuck with a bunch of South Korean currency that you couldn't move. Sam brainstormed all kinds of creative solutions for this problem, including everything from buying a jet and paying a bunch of South Koreans to physically move currency out of the country, to starting an import-export company to buy Tylenol in South Korea and resell it in the U.S. Then they found a good solution, Ripple. Ripple was another cryptocurrency, and if the price of Bitcoin was 20% higher in South Korea than the U.S., Ripple was consistently 25% higher. So Alameda started selling Ripple in South Korea, using the yuan to buy Bitcoin, sending the Bitcoin back to the U.S., selling it for dollars, using the dollars to buy Ripple, sending the Ripple to South Korea, and repeating the process. Instead of a 20% profit, they were only making 5% on every trade, but it was still a huge profit based on the volume they were doing, and it was essentially a riskless trade. That is, until it wasn't. One day, somebody noticed they were missing $4 million worth of Ripple. Everyone, as you can imagine, became really upset. Everyone except Sam. This is from the book again. We thought we needed to tell investors and tell employees so they could reconsider their options. But Sam hated that idea, said one of the firm's managers. Sam continued to insist that the missing Ripple was no big deal. He didn't think anyone had stolen it. He didn't actually believe that it was lost or that they should account for it as lost. He told his fellow managers that in his estimation, there was an 80% chance that it would eventually turn up. Thus, they should count themselves as still having 80% of it. To which one of his fellow managers replied, After the fact, if we never get any of the Ripple back, no one is going to say it is reasonable for us to have said we have 80% of the Ripple. Everyone is just going to say we lied to them. We'll be accused by our investors of fraud. That sort of argument just bugged the hell out of Sam. He hated the way inherently probabilistic situations would be interpreted after the fact as having been black and white, or good and bad, or right and wrong. So much of what made his approach to life different from most people's was his willingness to assign probabilities and act on them, and his refusal to be swayed by any after-the-fact illusion that the world had been more knowable than it actually was. So I think this is another really good example of our maxim, morals don't take vacations. Although it is admittedly a slightly different version of that maxim. As we saw in that excerpt, Sam believed that assigning probabilities was the way to view the world. So he wanted them to act as if they had 80% of the missing ripple because he figured there was an 80% chance of it turning up. But everyone else in the company said they would be accused of fraud after the fact if the ripple never turned up. Which is a pretty reasonable way to think about the situation. So Sam's morals didn't map perfectly to the larger morals of society, which is effectively the same thing as being immoral. Morgan Housel had a really good quote about this in an article he wrote on Elon Musk. He said, No one should be shocked when people who think about the world in unique ways you like also think about the world in unique ways you don't like. 
People love the visionary genius side of Elon Musk, but wanted to come without the side that operates in his distorted, I don't care about your customs version of reality. But I don't think those two things can be separated. They're the risk-reward trade-offs of the same personality trait. Same for Steve Jobs, who was both a genius and a monster of a boss. Same for Walt Disney, whose ambitions pushed every company he touched to the razor's edge of insolvency. Some people are natural maniacs, and you can't ask for the maniac parts you like without realizing there are maniac parts that might backfire. So this is something I've been thinking about a lot as I read these books. It seems like there's a huge amount of overlap between the type of person who Morgan Housel calls a natural maniac, a visionary entrepreneur like Steve Jobs or Walt Disney or Elon Musk, and the type of person who is willing to break the law, as it applies to this discussion, to commit fraud. So what do we do with that information? You could decide to simply avoid these erratic people, but then you'd probably miss a ton of upside. I think the more reasonable approach is to size your positions appropriately. One of my biggest takeaways from the three books we've covered so far is to not have all your eggs in one basket. The companies who raised funds exclusively to invest with Madoff or Theranos were the ones who got hurt the most. So when considering position sizing in our own investments, we have to account for the possibility that any investment could be a fraud. All right, let's jump back to the story here. As we've seen so far in our discussion of Alameda, very few of the employees were happy with Sam and none of the management team trusted him. So not long after the incident with the missing Ripple, his entire management team and half his employees left the company. And they also persuaded the investors to significantly reduce their investments. Now, instead of working with $170 million, Sam only had $40 million to trade. If you're still wondering what happened to that $4 million worth of Ripple, it eventually turned up. Turns out Sam's 80% prediction was right. The Ripple was being credited to an exchange that used a different programming language from the exchange the tokens were debited from. So the exchange received the Ripple, but they didn't know who owned it. That got sorted out, and the remaining employees at Alameda basically trusted Sam blindly going forward. The Ripple turning up confirmed that Sam was right all along, even if they didn't know why he was right. So I think this kind of reinforced what they were already thinking was that Sam is just a lot smarter than us and we don't understand how his brain works and we should just trust him. So if it didn't feel like a cult already, it definitely did after they found the Ripple. All right, so now we're at a point where Alameda Research is much smaller, both in terms of headcount and in terms of investment dollars they can use to trade crypto. If you remember back to why Sam started the company, it was to generate money to donate to effective altruist causes. Let me read you a short excerpt here that shows the fork in the road that they had approached. In 2018, trading $40 million in capital, Alameda Research had generated $30 million in profits. Their effective altruist investors took half, leaving behind $15 million. $5 million of that was lost to payroll and severance for the departing crowd. Another $5 million was lost to expenses. On the remaining $5 million, they'd paid taxes, and so after all was said and done, they'd donated to effective altruist causes just $1.5 million. It wasn't anything like enough in Sam's view. We needed to get a lot more capital, or way cheaper capital, or make much higher returns. So Sam needed money, and he came up with the perfect idea to make it, by starting a crypto exchange. If Sam owned the platform where everyone else was trading, he would get a tiny cut of every transaction, effectively an ATM he could use to fund Alameda and their trading, and even further, effective altruist causes. Sam knew that to get people trading on his exchange, it would need a unique value proposition. So instead of creating a spot exchange, he decided to build a futures exchange. The way all the other futures exchanges worked was that traders would put up collateral for a portion of their trades, essentially trading with leverage, and if their trades were losing at the end of a day, the exchange would require the trader to put up more collateral. But if the trades went bad quickly, they could wipe out the collateral, and the exchange would have to eat the loss or, more accurately, pass that loss on to its other customers. But Sam's exchange was unique in that it monitored customers' positions in real time and liquidated any trades that went into the red. This prevented the exchange from having any losses and having to pass those losses on to other customers. This was the birth of FTX. The plan here was for FTX to be the cash machine that funded Alameda, and that would become true, but in the beginning, they still needed money, so FTX minted a token called FTT. This was effectively like an IPO, but without the regulatory red tape. They minted 300 million FTT tokens and began selling them to employees and friends, and then the public, on FTX. The way these tokens worked was that FTX would set aside a third of their revenue to buy back tokens, and then they'd burn the tokens, so it was um, taking tokens off the market and raising the value of the remaining tokens. Sam initially started selling tokens to employees at $0.05 cents a piece and friends at $0.10 cents a piece. When FTT was officially listed on FTX, it opened at a dollar and quickly traded up to $1.50, so early investors made an insane amount of money. 
A few weeks after the initial FTT tokens were lift, listed on FTX, CZ, the owner of another big crypto exchange called Binance, called Sam and offered to buy 20% of FTX for $80 million. Sam took him up on the offer. This relationship with CZ is going to come up again, so keep it in mind. Here's another short excerpt from the book. It was as if a wildcatter had accidentally built his house on an oil field. Sam hadn't even really wanted to run a crypto exchange. He'd built a casino that offered gamblers the chance to make bets bigger than their bank accounts justified at seemingly no risk to the casino or to the other gamblers, and it was exactly what the crypto world wanted. His timing, though accidental, was perfect, as big professional traders like Jane Street were entering the crypto markets and in need of a professional-grade futures exchange. As I just read to you there, Sam was sitting on a gold mine. He founded FTX in May of 2019, and by the end of the year it had done... $10 million in revenue. He expected it to do 80 to 100 million in 2020. In 2021, FTX generated a billion dollars in revenue. But before FTX made all this money, earlier in 2021, Sam was trying to get some recognition outside of the crypto community. He needed to build trust with a broader audience, so he did two things. He worked with regulators to obtain licenses, and he worked with VCs to obtain capital. He really didn't need the capital, but the association with the VC firms helped his reputation. Now, I find this point to be really interesting because it's something we've seen with both Madoff and Theranos, something I call outsourced trust. Sam was trying to get investments from big VC firms because the credibility that came with those firms was huge. Why? Because people outsource their trust to their friends, to their relatives, to notable institutions. If you trust somebody who trusts a third person, you, by extension, will probably trust that third person. So I call this outsourced trust, and I came up with a maxim for it because we see it in every case of fraud. That maxim is outsourced trust will eventually bust. It happened with Madoff's investors, it happened with Theranos' investors, and it happened with FTX's investors too. If you don't have firsthand trust of a person or a company, you really shouldn't be investing in it. If trust is what Sam was looking for, he got it from the VCs. By the spring of 2021, FTX had sold 6% of the company for $2.3 billion. 150 different VC firms invested. What I find interesting about these investments is how every single firm caved when Sam refused to give them a seat on the board. And that was because he didn't have a board. I'm not a professional investor, but my first question here is, why doesn't a $20 billion company have a board? Especially when it's run by a guy like Sam, who's a total wild card. And it's not like these guys didn't know Sam was a wild card. Check out this excerpt from the book. I got on the phone with him, recalled Nick Shalik of Ribbit Capital. I asked him a question, and he talked for an hour. I asked him a second question, and he talked for another hour. Shalik was struck, as were many of the VCs, by Sam's seeming artlessness. He says if he has a decision to make, and the decision is a million-dollar decision, he'll make it in five seconds. If it's a $10 million decision, he'll take a few minutes. And if it's a $100 million decision, he'll spend a couple of hours on it. And it's like he's serious? I'm thinking, God, you can't say that to a regulator or a journalist or anyone. This artless workaholic was plotting to take over the financial world and had a plausible story about how he might do it. For him to build the business he was describing, it would be the largest global crypto exchange and then go beyond that to become the largest global financial institution, said Shalik. He, like everyone else, quickly saw that Sam didn't resemble most of the entrepreneurs he'd dealt with. He's not a showman. He's not a salesman. He's got a non-conventional way of thinking about building his organization. Everything is probabilities, and he'd pull these probabilities out of thin air, and then he'd change them. He's sleeping on a beanbag. He's doing all of this by himself, and he doesn't seem particularly interested in our opinion on anything, which is fine, but we were like, he's an unusual person. We have to spend time with him in person. But they couldn't spend time with Sam in person. The Hong Kong government had responded to the global pandemic by requiring anyone who entered the country to quarantine in a hotel for 14 days. Sam was understood and interpreted by his original investors, mostly via Zoom, and in the middle of one of the great venture capital booms in history. So a couple points here. The first thing I wondered was if these had been normal times and people had, number one, been able to spend time with Sam, and number two, we weren't in a VC boom, would they still have invested with him? The second thing is another maxim I've repeated on all the episodes so far. Desire is blinding. Sam had plans to build the largest crypto exchange and then the largest global financial institution. These guys didn't want to miss out on that investment. They so badly wanted it to be true that they ignored the major risks associated with Sam. The unfortunate thing is that it seems like FTX maybe could have become those things, but Sam was so much of a liability that it couldn't have become those things under him. And all the investors overlooked that. There's another thing I have to mention that I absolutely can't believe 150 different VC firms overlooked. FTX didn't have a CFO. They also didn't have a chief risk officer or a head of human resources. The absence of those positions is less surprising and alarming, but still unusual for a company this size. Also, as may not surprise you at this point, they didn't even have an org chart. 
The only reason Michael Lewis knew who reported to who was because George Lerner, the FTX psychiatrist, drew up an org chart because he felt he needed to understand where his patients stood in the organization. So this wasn't even an official org chart. This was just like a back-of-the-napkin sketch that the psychiatrist drew up for his own reference. As a quick aside here, it seems like requesting an org chart would probably be a good thing to do as part of due diligence if you're investing in a company. Not so much because the contents of the org chart are particularly important, but the absence of an org chart could be an important piece of information or the absence of key roles on that org chart. It seems like a simple request that could possibly give you some other questions to ask. In any event, FTX didn't have a CFO. Here's a short excerpt from the book that'll tell you how Sam felt about corporate governance. It's unclear if we even have to have an actual board of directors, said Sam, but we get suspicious glances if we don't have one, so we have something with three people on it. He admitted he couldn't recall the names of two of the people. I knew who they were three months ago, he said. It might have changed. The main job requirement is that they don't mind docu-signing at 3 a.m. Docu-signing is the main job. Then there was the CFO. For the past 18 months, various venture capitalists whom Sam had permitted to invest in FTX had been telling him that he should hire a serious grown-up to act as the company's chief financial officer. There's a functional religion around the CFO, said Sam. I'll ask them, why do I need one? Some people can't articulate a single thing the CFO is supposed to do. They'll say, keep track of the money or make projections. I'm like, what the fuck do you think I do all day? You think I don't know how much money we have? Sam had briefly entertained the idea that it might be useful to have some older people around. We tried having some grown-ups, but they didn't do anything, he said. This was true for everyone over the age of 45. All they did was worry. Here's a classic grown-up thing. You freak the fuck out about a Chinese government crackdown on crypto in Hong Kong. Their job was to be serious about problems, even if the problems were not serious. The truth was that grown-ups bored him. All they did was slow him down. So this lack of corporate governance and, and frankly, lack of any responsible adults involved in the company seems like a major red flag to me. And it's actually a theme we're seeing now. So this was basically the same case with Theranos. Theranos had a board, but nobody on the board was very interested in closely supervising the company. And the ones who were ended up getting kicked off the board. Theranos also lacked a CFO. This general lack of supervision leads to our newest maxim, CFO or it's a no. As an investor, you can't invest in companies that don't have a CFO. A CFO doesn't guarantee bad things won't happen, but it's a small check and balance that you shouldn't be comfortable foregoing. And while this maxim specifically refers to the CFO, it should make you think of corporate governance generally. Ask for the org chart, ask to meet the CFO, ask about the board of directors, especially when investing in young entrepreneurs. Okay, another important thing to understand here is the relationship between FTX and Alameda because it will help the fraud make more sense when we talk about it later. The two companies were separate but undeniably linked. Alameda had fronted $5 to $10 million for FTX's startup costs. Sam was the majority owner of both companies. FTX and Alameda shared offices. Not just the building, they shared the same space. They were sitting on the same floor. They shared desks. You didn't really know where one began and the other ended. And when FTX sold the FTT, which I mentioned earlier that they did in that IPO-like transaction, they used that money not to fund FTX growth, but to trade inside Alameda. Something else to note about Alameda is that it was much bigger than most people understand. In 2019, they made $100 million in trading profits. In 2020 and 2021, a billion dollars each year. This was partially due to Sam's easy access to money. Crypto lenders would lend him vast sums at fairly low rates, often collateralized by his huge stakes in different tokens like FTT and Solana. And the more tokens Sam gobbled up, the more their price rose. For example, Alameda bought 15% of all Solana tokens, most at 25 cents a piece. After 18 months, they were trading around $250, a thousand times what Alameda had paid. FTT had also risen to $80 per token, if you remember Sam was initially selling it for five cents a piece and then a dollar on the public markets. And Alameda owned about half the existing tokens. Bottom line is that Alameda was very profitable and it had a lot of assets. Keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it later. In the meantime, let's talk about the relationship between FTX and Binance. If you don't remember, Binance is another crypto exchange owned by that guy named CZ who also owns 20% of FTX. So FTX was working really hard to obtain a license from U.S. regulators because none of the other exchanges had one, and Sam knew it was only a matter of time before they would get shut down. He knew getting a license could immediately cause the customers of other exchanges to flock to FTX. But one of the problems was that CZ was one of FTX's biggest investors, and the first thing regulators wanted was a list of investors. Michael Lewis had a good analogy for this. If you wanted to be the teacher's pet, you couldn't sit in the back of the classroom with the badass in the leather jacket. So Sam bought out CZ, and CZ was not cheap. For his 20% in the company, 
for which he'd paid $80 million about two years prior, CZ demanded $2.3 billion. Keep in mind that $500 million of that deal was paid in FTT. We're also going to come back to that later. For now, I want to jump all the way back to where we began this episode with Sam's media appearances. Not long after that first TV interview I told you about, where Sam was talking with Bloomberg reporters while simultaneously playing a video game, Forbes became interested in ranking Sam's net worth. In late 2021, they published that his net worth was $22.5 billion. Here's a quick excerpt from the book. When Sam saw the response to the Forbes billionaire list and the Forbes cover that followed, any doubts he had about the value of public relations evaporated. Natalie's job, Natalie was his PR person, Natalie's job became both simpler and more complicated. Simpler because basically everyone now wanted to talk to Sam, and Sam was game to talk to anyone, so long as he could play a video game while he was doing it. Sam went from being totally private to being a media whore. He was as happy to yak for an hour in a completely unguarded way with the reporter from the West We Go Crypto Daily as he was to speak with someone from the New York Times. So as I mentioned before, Sam was trying to build trust outside the crypto community and mostly to bring more people onto the FTX platform. And media appearances was one of the ways he did that. He was regularly appearing on television and he was starting to become more of a household name. And this brought with it a ton of credibility. This is worth pausing to talk about because we saw the same thing with Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Media attention creates a form of outsourced trust for average people. If the media is covering this person, they must be good slash important slash fill in the blank. That's what people tend to think. And much like with propaganda, the more they see it, the more they believe it, even if it isn't based in reality. There's this phenomenon we should all remember called the Gell-Mann amnesia effect. It goes like this. You open the newspaper to read an article about a topic you know really well. While reading the article, you realize the person who wrote the article doesn't have a good understanding of the topic, and a lot of the article is inaccurate. But then you turn the page to an article on a topic where you aren't an expert, and you read it as if the whole thing is true and accurate. Now, this isn't to say that everything we read in a magazine or newspaper is wrong. It just says that it could be. So we shouldn't base our entire opinion of a person or a topic on the couple news articles we read about it. Now, you and I would never do this, right? We know about the Gell-Mann amnesia effect. We know about Elizabeth Holmes and SBF. How could we be fooled? I'm saying this a little tongue-in-cheek because even when you know how this stuff works, it's still really easy to be fooled by it. That's why we're studying these frauds. That's why we're trying to pull out the commonalities and learn from them. That's why we're distilling what we learn so we have an easily accessible playbook to draw from when we're making decisions for our businesses and investments. The one that applies here is the one that I've said before and I'll say again. Outsourced trust will eventually bust. If you outsource your trust to the media, that's a good way to get duped. While we're on the topic of media and publicity, there's one other thing I want to talk about, and that's the money FTX spent on marketing. Aside from Sam's media appearances, they were trying to plaster the letters FTX on everything they could. I'm going to read you a section from the book here. It's referring to Constance Wang, the COO of FTX. Four years later, she paged through the private documents she'd unearthed that described some of what Sam had done with his surplus waking hours. The first was an internal spreadsheet of FTX's spending on endorsements. On the org chart, Constance oversaw all of FTX marketing. Until then, she'd never seen FTX's biggest marketing expenditures. The numbers boggled her mind. Three-year deals each with the Coachella Music Festival, Steph Curry, and Mercedes Formula One team for, respectively, $25 million, $31.5 million, and $79 million. The five-year deal with Major League Baseball for $162.5 million. A seven-year deal with the video game developer Riot Games for $105 million, just because Sam likes League of Legends, said Constance. On it went for a very long time, until it reached the smaller deals, which actually didn't look so small. $15.7 million to Shark Tank's Kevin O'Leary, for example, for 20 service hours, 20 social posts, one virtual lunch, and 50 autographs. I want to shed a little bit more light on some of these expenses here. So the $162 million that I just mentioned to the MLB, that was to put the FTX logo on every umpire uniform. They also spent $155 million to buy the naming rights for the Miami Heat's arena. They really liked this deal because it required approval from the Miami-Dade Board of County Commissioners so they could say that they had the approval of a government body. They paid LeBron James and Shaquille O'Neal, and they paid Tom Brady $55 million and his wife nearly $20 million. That collective $75 million was for 40 total hours of time from the couple, nearly $2 million per hour. They also paid Larry David $10 million to do a 60-second Super Bowl commercial that cost $25 million to produce an air. So the thing about spending all this money is that the people receiving the money obviously don't do much of any vetting, but FTX gets all the trust and legitimacy that these people and organizations bring with them. So if you were a Tom Brady fan or an MLB fan or a Miami Heat fan, FTX was becoming ubiquitous in your world. And because you trusted those other people and organizations, you began to trust FTX by extension. It was honestly a brilliant play on their part. 
That's how marketing works. Coca-Cola and Budweiser and McDonald's and thousands of other brands do the same thing. The difference is that those brands aren't responsible for billions of dollars of customer funds, so the stakes of trust are much lower. You choose McDonald's because you saw a sweet Michael Jordan commercial and you get a crappy Big Mac, okay, you're out seven bucks. If you chose FTX because of a Tom Brady commercial, you could be out thousands, tens of thousands, millions of dollars. The difference is pretty clear. As an investor, I think the biggest lesson to keep in mind is that publicity shouldn't be considered signal. It should be considered noise. Publicity should not be used as a proxy for trust. Okay, so that brings us through 2021 and into 2022. And the thing about FTX is that even though it felt like it was everywhere, it didn't last that long. It was founded in 2019, and by the end of 2022, it was bankrupt. Before we talk about how it fell apart, I want to share a few stories about Sam that should have been red flags, at least in hindsight. And keep in mind, I'm not trying to pretend anyone should have known that FTX was mishandling customer deposits or that Bernie Madoff was running a Ponzi scheme or that Elizabeth Holmes' magical blood testing technology didn't exist. Actually, some people definitely should have known about that one. Anyway, the purpose of these podcasts isn't to cast shade on people who were duped. It's to identify as many indicators as we can with the benefit of hindsight so that we don't find ourselves in similar situations in the future. I think if the victims of the frauds we're studying had studied some prior frauds themselves, they would have been much less likely to become victims. And that's what we're doing here, trying to reduce the likelihood that we lose money on a fraudulent investment or partner with a company that's committing a fraud. With that, here are a few stories. A few months later, toward the end of July 2022, I met Sam beside the tarmac of a private airfield in Northern California. As usual, he was late. When he finally arrived, he didn't so much step as tumble out of the back of a black car. Instead of a suitcase, he carried what appeared to be a small pile of old laundry. As he drew closer, I saw that it was a blue suit and a button-down Brooks Brothers shirt. This is my DC suit, he said, almost apologetically. Normally, I leave it in DC. Six hours in the future, he was meant to have dinner with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, whom he'd never met. He'd been briefed that McConnell would be offended if he arrived in shorts. McConnell really cares about what you wear, said Sam, as he walked up the steps of the private plane and plopped the suit ball onto a spare seat. I eyed the ball of clothes. Its wrinkles were not new and shallow, but old and deep, reversible only with time and effort. It was hard to see how these clothes would be of any use in this situation. Do you have a belt? I asked. I do not have a belt, he said, as he reached into a basket of vegan snacks, grabbed a sack of popcorn, and dropped into his seat. Shoes? Uh, no shoes, he said. It was as if he'd only received a single explicit instruction. Bring a suit. Whoever had sent it had neglected to add, make sure it's wearable and that you have whatever else you need to satisfy Mitch McConnell's need for his dinner companions to appear formally dressed. And so Sam had not bothered to consider what else might be needed for a suit if it were to be successfully worn. He did this kind of thing a lot. Seven months earlier, he'd testified about crypto regulation before the House Financial Services Committee. Someone snapped a close-up of his feet under the table. The laces of his new dress shoes were still swaddled and gathered off to one side as they come in the box. Someone must have handed him the shoes and said, without further instruction, you should put these on. Here's another example from the book. As he said that, he tossed popcorn in his mouth in a herky-jerky motion that resembled a clumsy layup. He was shooting around 60%, and the popcorn was flying everywhere. He'd failed to catch a dish of warm nuts as they'd hurtled past him during takeoff, and they too were still scattered all around him. As he'd ordered the political world in his mind, he'd created chaos in the space he inhabited. Finally, we landed, and he ran to his dinner, leaving the mess for someone else to clean up. I think this example is a good peek into how Sam views the world. As we talked about at the very beginning, he had a general sense of superiority, which in some respects was justified, but the way it extended to every other part of his life was problematic. Another thing that comes up throughout the book is Sam's romantic relationship with Caroline Ellison, his CEO of Alameda Research. Now, this relationship was so private that basically nobody knew about it, so it's not really something anyone would have picked up on as a red flag, but I think it's worth mentioning because the same thing was the case at Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes was in a romantic relationship with her number two, Sonny, and this was especially problematic because she partially brought Sonny into the company because he was an older, experienced entrepreneur, and she needed to show the board she had some responsible leadership in the company. This relationship was also secret, but less secret than Sam and Caroline's. All that to say, romantic relationships between executives don't necessarily indicate fraud, but they indicate poor corporate governance, which creates a scenario conducive to fraud. You might not always be able to identify these relationships, but it's something you should be looking out for. One more excerpt I want to share, mostly because I think it's brilliant writing, but it also speaks to Sam's weirdness. The list of questions I showed up with whenever I met with Sam always felt like one of those trick drinking glasses that refills itself after you've taken a gulp. His answers, 
always led to even more questions. Okay, so those are just a few examples of Sam's qualities that should have given investors pause. And those are on top of the things we've already discussed, like the lack of a CFO, a chief risk officer, and a board of directors. Sam truly was a genius, and he built an amazing company, but he wasn't suited to run that company. He needed supervision. If you know anything about Uber, it's similar to Travis Kalanick. He was a maniac, and Uber wouldn't have gotten off the ground without a maniac at the helm, but at a certain point, he would have also destroyed the company, so he was basically removed by his investors. As I mentioned earlier, erratic people are often the ones who build tremendous companies, but they're also prone to doing crazy things like committing fraud. So when we see the red flags I highlighted above, the things that make you think the person might be a little crazy, I think there are two appropriate courses of action. First, as we mentioned, size your position appropriately. And second, make sure there's some checks and balances in place, like a good board of directors and good senior leadership. I'll mention our maxim again, CFO or it's a no. There has to be adult supervision. All right, it's finally time to talk about how this whole thing fell apart. As I've hinted at a few times, Binance and CZ played a big part in the unraveling. I'm going to cut right to the punchline so you know what we're dealing with. $8 billion belonging to FTX customers, which was supposed to be inside FTX, actually made its way to Alameda Research. And when FTX experienced a run of withdrawals, they didn't have the money to pay them all out. Now I'll explain how that happened. Let's start with Binance. Since before FTX started, there had always been a rivalry and some animosity between Sam and CZ. That animosity came to a head in late 2022, and CZ instigated what would turn into a run on FTX. In early November of 2022, the crypto news site Coindesk published an article which basically was Alameda's balance sheet. The article showed $14.6 billion of assets and $8 billion of liabilities, but about a third of the assets were FTT. After the article, CZ tweeted indicating he would be selling all of his FTT, $500 million worth. This would obviously flood the market and tank the price of FTT, which would hurt Alameda's balance sheet and potentially cause a panic around FTX. And that's exactly what happened. FTX was supposed to have $15 billion in customer deposits. Within a few days, customers withdrew $5 billion, and then FTX stopped sending funds to customers because they basically had no funds left to send to them. The remaining assets were inside Alameda, and many of them were not immediately liquid. So Sam scrambled to find a $7 billion loan. He spoke with sovereign wealth funds, private equity funds, and Asian crypto exchanges. Every potential lender had one question. Where did the customer deposits go? As Lewis wrote, when that question went unanswered, everyone who had $7 billion lying around lost interest. So how did this happen? The answer is actually pretty simple. When FTX was founded in 2019, they couldn't find a U.S. bank to open an account for them, so they had no way to accept deposits from new customers. But Alameda did have a U.S. bank account, so they'd simply instructed FTX customers to send their funds to Alameda's accounts. In 2021, FTX finally did get a U.S. bank account, but they never bothered to move that $8.8 billion that had accumulated in Alameda. At the end of 2021, by the time FTX had U.S. bank accounts and they no longer routed customer deposits to Alameda, Alameda had net assets of about $100 billion. So that $8.8 billion of customer deposits didn't really seem like a big deal. They probably felt like they could move it at any time if they needed to. But that was at the end of 2021 when crypto prices were at all-time highs. By the summer of 2022, the tables had turned. Just as one simple example, Bitcoin had plummeted from its all-time highs of $65,000 to less than $20,000. So you can imagine what that did to the rest of Alameda's assets. All of a sudden, that $8.8 billion of customer deposits became very significant. As I mentioned earlier, Alameda was funding a lot of their trading with funds from crypto lending companies collateralized by their various tokens like FTT and Solana. When crypto prices started dropping and the collateral started disappearing, I'm sure Alameda had to repay those loans. And what did they have left to repay them with? Customer funds. According to the book, Sam only dug into the Alameda accounts in October of 2022 and discovered that they had been operating as if that $8.8 billion belonged to them. By that point, it was really too late to do anything about it. This version of the story actually turned out to be false. He definitely knew before this point. The huge question here, and one that probably would have been properly handled with more adult supervision, is why didn't Sam just move the money from Alameda back into FTX at the end of 2021? Nobody seems to have an answer to this question, but it was one simple action that could have prevented the whole mess. So there's one other maxim I want to speak to here. Investing in a new industry is like buying a house in a bad neighborhood. Let me explain a little bit. That neighborhood might gentrify and you could make a killing, or you could be out mowing your lawn one day and get hit by a stray bullet from a turf war. New industries have potential to be super profitable, but they also bring with them way more risks. And that's largely for two reasons. First, they aren't fully understood yet, and they also aren't properly regulated yet. 
if FTX had been properly regulated, they would have had regular exams and it would have quickly become apparent that they were mishandling customer funds. The problem that caused their downfall is a problem that likely wouldn't have happened in an established and well-regulated industry. So instead of making a killing on their investments, investors got hit with a stray bullet instead. Just as a small example, Sequoia Capital, one of the VC funds that invested in FTX, wrote down their investment to $0 for a loss of more than $200 million. So that's how it unfolded. FTX had a run of withdrawals that they weren't able to pay out because they were holding customer funds in Alameda Research. Shortly thereafter, they declared bankruptcy, and the company was taken over by John Ray, a notorious figure in the bankruptcy world. He was the guy who oversaw the Enron bankruptcy proceedings. I'm going to read you an excerpt from one of Ray's filings on FTX. He wrote, I have over 40 years of legal and restructuring experience. I have been the chief restructuring officer or chief executive officer in several of the largest corporate failures in history. I have supervised situations involving allegations of criminal activity and malfeasance at Enron. I have supervised situations involving novel financial structures at Enron and residential capital and cross-border asset recovery and maximization at Nortel and overseas shipholding. Nearly every situation in which I have been involved has been characterized by defects of some sort in internal controls, regulatory compliance, human resources, and systems integrity. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here at FTX. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. Just to underline what I just read to you there, the guy who oversaw the Enron bankruptcy said that this was worse than Enron. Take a moment to let that sink in. Sam's trial concluded in early November of 2023, and he was found guilty on all seven charges, including wire fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud, and conspiracy to commit money laundering. His sentencing is scheduled to take place in March of 2024, and he could be facing more than 100 years in prison. And that is where I'll leave you. Hopefully by studying SBF, Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, and all the other fraudsters we're going to talk about this season, we can identify and avoid fraud in our businesses and investments. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend buying the book. It has a ton of additional detail I didn't have time to cover here, but it's fascinating and it's definitely worth reading. If you do buy the book, using the link in the show notes, you'll be supporting the podcast, which I very much appreciate. And with that, we're one book closer to avoiding fraud as investors and entrepreneurs.